0: Hi, I'm Carmen LaBurge. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge.
1: Today is the day.
0: Good morning! Today is the day. This is the day the Lord has made. We are rejoicing. We are glad in it. We recognize that there are neighbors um, in deep distress today, suffering greatly. I'm actually going to have a conversation later this morning uh, that we will work into uh, the show tomorrow with a pastor in the Bahamas. Um, His church is—the church building is lost— we are going to talk with him about uh, the devastation that he and his people are experiencing. Um, surprisingly, it's, it's possible that, that school, some schools are going to reopen today in the Bahamas, and there's a reason for that. They need those kids to have some safe place to go so that the adults um, can, you know, deal with everything else. So just be praying there's a, a, a quite a, a force underway right now to uh, rescue people who um, have been stranded by floodwaters, some twenty-three feet high. There are extraordinary videos uh, posted today. Just be in in prayer and um, thanksgiving for those who are always willing to go into harm's way on behalf of others. Um, let's be praying that people would be kept not only safe but rescued, and and then that there would be the resources that are necessary um, for the recovery that is going to take a very long time. So. Uh, the the time to do uh, to do something beyond praying or in addition to praying will come but today I think that what we're in a position to do is is to pray uh, and so let us certainly be doing that okay so a listener reached out to me yesterday and um, it's always extraordinary to me what people are dealing with in in their lives and how they are hoping that we as a community of believers um, might be able to speak into the realities that they're facing. And so I just want each and every person who's listening right now to be um, praying for our sister Cheryl, who listens uh, regularly to the program and is really dealing with um, a very significant challenge in her own life. She has a child who is now nearly 30 years old who uh, does not identify as the uh, as the sex that she is she identifies as a man and that has obviously caused um, a lot of um, challenge in their family in their church um, but it, it, grievously it um, there's a delusion at work that leads this child to believe things about herself that are not true? And how does a mom who is a Christian and a ministry leader um, love her child and yet not compromise the truth? How do we do that? And so uh, I want to remind you that there are resources out there that are available. The Restored Hope Network at restoredhopenetwork.org. We've recently talked with Ann Polk, the director of the Restored Hope Network here on the program Uh, We talked with her specifically about some publishing issues, but uh, she talks a lot about the Equality Act that Congress is now considering making a law here in the United States. We have talked with uh, Andrew Walker about God and the transgender debate. Uh, We haven't talked to Ryan Anderson, but he has an excellent book out as well, When Harry Became Sally, Responding to the Transgender Moment. Um, There are resources available, and we're actually going to have a conversation up next here with Peter Kapsner. And we're going to talk about identity. We're going to talk about – he and I are going to use a uh, an article from Psychology Today called Gender, While so- Why Self-Identification is Not Enough. Um, but there are resources out there. This is a conversation that's happening in the culture, and it's a conversation that we need to be able to have as Christians. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Peter Kapsner is, uh, is a professor, he's a ministry leader, he's a dad, he's a husband. So all kinds of ways that we could um, describe Peter. He's a business owner. He's a bit of a character. Um, there's lots of a ways bit. in which...
2: A bit? A bit. As, oh, dear. He,
0: he likes strong, <laughs> hot coffee.
2: There's I lots do. of ways
0: we could identify Peter. I think the question is, how does Peter self-identify, and is Peter's self-identification enough? Peter.
2: Good morning. Well, that is quite an opening, Carmen. I'm not entirely sure that I know how to respond uh, to that. Other than what's <laughs> interesting about that is when I, when I think about all of those different things that you just listed off, all of those are related to experiences that I'm having in my life. And they all certainly do speak into how I understand myself. And there's a lot of that Psychology Today article that you referenced before the break that, uh, that really is part of that thing. It's, it's very difficult to just simply understand oneself. And so I start from a place of saying, here's what I know. I am, uh, I'm a, a, an image bearer of God, and and I bear His stamp as I'm doing life in this world. And if I can start from that place, then a lot of other things can start falling in line.
0: All right. So you make reference there to experiences, right? And then, right. and so I think that's one of the things that we have to talk about. Like, am I simply my current experience, or the sum total of my life experiences? Am I who I think I am? Am I who you think I am? Am I in reality who God thinks I am? Let's talk a little bit about identity, self-discovery, people's perceptions. Just wander around in the the conversation about, about identity, who I am.
2: Yeah, it's such a interesting question, and and I just want to go back to you. Referenced Cheryl and what she's struggling with before the break too, and with a thirty year old son, and and I would suggest that uh, if if young people and even now into their late twenties and thirties don't have a lot of questions and confusion about this. Carmen, I think that's what would be unusual, just given the, the volume of information that is sort of screaming at them through their, their devices all day long, given sort of who the thought leaders tend to be in academia and increasingly in the churches, given the experiences of their friends. If people aren't questioning their sense of identity these days as young people, it, I think that's kind of unusual. I mean, I know when I was growing up, it wasn't so much the the sexuality stuff, but there really was uh, sort of this partying lifestyle that happened. And you sort of found your identity at that point in your sense of belonging with whether or not you fit in and got invited to the right parties on a Friday or Saturday kind of night. And so one piece of the puzzle and and just referencing back then to the experiences that we have that give us a sense of identity, like you talked about, it's interesting when you study the Hebrew language of the biblical text. And I just referenced the idea that we are image bearers of God. And within the Hebrew language, it is a verb rooted language. And so we were just talking with uh, our five kids at home, as well as some of our friends' five kids about the idea that within the Hebrew, human beings are considered at their root and at their core, that they are verbs and not nouns. And, And that's sort of this mind exploding moment. And I teach it in most of my classes, because what that suggests is that we are constantly moving and changing. we are constantly developing and growing, and that we are very much the product of whatever experiences uh, that we have, whatever behaviors in which we engage and so you 're constantly being formed. I think it was Dallas Willard who said that it 's not a question uh, as if we 're going to be formed. The question is is by what are we going to be formed uh, and so As Verbi people with experiences and behaviors and events in our lives, they shape us and they change us. So this idea that uh, I have sort of um, this fixed reality that I understand myself and I can just say this is who I am and now deal with it, I I think once you go beyond being an image bearer, which is what we're going to be, then from there you have to start maybe thinking in terms of some different language and saying, so I am male, and what does that mean as I grow in my maleness and all of that? But this fluidity and the back and forth and the experiences, it's really an interesting time.
0: So some things come to mind as you're saying all of that. Romans 12 certainly leaps to mind um, in terms of not being conformed to this world, but right. being transformed by the renewing of our minds. There is this ongoing process of formation— um, but, you know, like we become more who we are as we understand more of who God is. And then this transformation process as Christians where we willingly um, submit to the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, bringing us into greater conformity with who Christ is. There is this formation, reformation, transformation process that the Christian um, – endures maybe is the right word, experiences certainly <laughs> over sure. the course of a lifetime. Like it never really, it never ends. It's, it is continual. We are always in the process of becoming who we really are um, in Christ. I do think that the question of whether or not I'm a human being, you know, in my essence, um, reflective of who God is, uh, self-revealed as I am, right? That's a being, uh, there's a being reality to that, you know, or am I a sum total of my human doings? Right. And and I'm not I'm I'm not I'm not just what I do. um That's a part of my experience and, and the expression of my life. But it's not who I am. Like and and it's not enough for me to self-identify as something. I mean, I could self-identify all way lo- all day long as a runway model. And that is not happening. Like, right. And that's, that's not <laughs> nobody wants that. So, um you know, but but I'm pretty good at this. And yet I will tell you. Because of my life experience up to this point, I mean, I only started, you know, I only sat down in front of a radio microphone or stood up in front of a radio microphone uh, three years ago. And so identifying, like identifying as the host of a radio show, because it's, it's still uncomfortable with that. I still don't think that's who I am. I mean, I'm like, that's it's what I get up and do every morning, but it's not who I am.
2: Yeah, it's it's interesting that you say that. And this is going to sound silly and perhaps just a little bit trite, but I, but it's, it, I don't mean it to be in the sense that. Uh, growing up in the state of Minnesota and being a football fan, I mean, I would have identified as a Vikings fan because when I watch the Minnesota Vikings football team, there are passions and experiences and desires and hopes and dreams and, and joys and sorrows and all of what goes with that in the experience. And so because I'm experiencing these things, I called myself a Vikings fan. But in, in in light of the last uh, several years of trying to identify ourselves through only our experience alone in our sexuality, I've actually started saying something dumb when people ask me the question. I'll say, you know, here's the deal. I'm actually uh, an, an image-bearing child of God who enjoys the Vikings. That's a very different kind of statement because a Vikings fan is an identity statement. And what I'll say, Carmen, is that I don't actually watch them with the same passion, interest, desire that I might have 15 years ago. And so does that mean suddenly because I'm not having the exact same experiences that I had 10 years ago that I'm no longer a Vikings fan and I question my identity, all of that. And so I think it's it, – it's I, I don't use the terms gay and lesbian anymore Um, Not because it's respectful or disrespectful, but I will say instead um, an image-bearing child of God is having a same-gender attraction experience. Now, I don't say it exactly that way, but do you hear the difference? There's a difference between gay and lesbian being an identity statement and somebody who's legitimately experiencing same-gender attractions. I believe people are, but the origin of those is what then we can begin to talk about and wonder about as opposed to creating some kind of fixed identity statement from them.
0: Yeah, this leads into a great conversation about all all the social identities that we bear. Sports is a really good one. I think politics is another one. Absolutely. All right, uh, Peter, and like our colleges, like, right? Right. Uh, Peter Kapsner and I are going to return to this conversation, but we must take a break as good radio hosts. We'll be right back.
1: <laughs>
2: that the eyes that see my sin would look on me?
0: Peter Kapsner and I are talking this morning about identity. We are recognizing that there's a lot of identity confusion in the culture today. Um, We recognize that there is deep compassion that is necessary on the part of um, those who see reality for what it is in relationship with those who would have us participate not only in their delusion, but in a delusion that um, our entire culture is being pressed to acknowledge uh, as truth. And so this is a conversation about truth and what is true um, and what is unchanging. And those are some biological conversations, conversations about biology or genetics. And then there is, which is like, which is actual science. And then there's a conversation that's another layer that is the identity conversation. And it is the way in which people self-identify in the culture today, um, oftentimes, sometimes at least, misaligned not in uh not in coordination with their biological or um chromosomal identity like the reality of their sex as male and female. And so we want to distinguish because that's what this article in psychology today does. We want to distinguish sex from gender. So Peter, let's uh let's wander around in that. Let's wander around in social identities versus um these like biological Unchanging categories of male and female.
2: Yeah, that was an interesting part of the article I felt was that the author took sort of this painstaking journey through the topic to the point of really trying to differentiate the sort of the the biological sex and and the realities of hormones and and chromosomes that you referenced that as part of our physical structure that would identify us as male and female and then differentiate that from gender, which this author is arguing, is how someone perceives oneself. And I, and I do wanna make a note that this is actually a really unusual way of understanding the human being. Um, gender dysphoria is defined as an idea that I think that I'm female, sort of in my mind and in my sense of social identity, but the dysphoria comes is that there's confusion that my my female sense of myself is different than my biological reality. And divorcing those two topics is actually pretty unusual. People always have sort of understood that your biology and your sense of self all kind of follow together when they're rightly ordered and rightly aligned. And so to split those two apart already creates something that's really interesting and different in terms of uh, the human perception. And And the author then goes on to talk about a bit that um, th- this is hard for somebody to then, of course, sort out. And this is where there's even non-Christian surgeons who are doing sex change operations moving the biological parts and changing them that are saying this isn't working out at the end of the day and to, and to change someone's sex or biology is really even being considered abusive in some circles uh, because it just be, you're you're trying to change something so disruptively in biological sex because somebody comes to you and says hey look I understand myself to be a female and I'm trapped in a male body that's a really disruptive procedure then to try to realign somebody's sense of self which Maybe their sense of self is where you need to do the work before you get into the biology of all of it.
0: Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, you can't change somebody's biology. You might be able to t- to change their temporary chemistry right. by you know the influence of hormones, but you're not going to change the underlying biology. There's a there's a biological reality to being male and female um, by God's design. We would argue um, that's that's fixed. Uh, and in fact, there's there's current research that you know strips away. Uh, any of those old arguments about being born this way, right? I mean, right. there there is no gay gene. Like right. it's we we now like scientifically know that, and so the the argument that um you know that I was born this way that this is who I really am, um is is disproven by science. It's always been disclaimed um, by the Christian worldview and frankly, the Islamic worldview and the Jewish worldview. I mean, sort of pick your Abrahamic worldview here. Abramic, I'm supposed to be saying, not Abrahamic, <laughs> the Abramic worldview. Um, okay, so where do you want to go from here in terms of this conversation? Because we've got like a minute left.
2: Yeah, I think quickly just a note to follow up with that piece of it and, and referencing. So how do we help people in these situations? And it's and it's a very much a long-term journey. But I think a starting place is to maybe recognize that the human heart, one of its deepest and, and most profound desires is to have a sense of belonging, to know where somebody fits, to know to who are your people. Right who who can you be with that you know that they see you and sort of celebrate you and and I think if somebody can say, "Hey, I am this and you name the gender, name the sex situation, whatever it is, then they they can understand who their people are and I think if instead of trying to bring alignment with biology to somebody's sense of gender, I think we as a church and we as parents and we as people could wonder about our sense of belonging and spend a, spend a lot of time on that because what I'll say, Carmen. I've been talking with my students these last 10 years over and over and over again, and I ask them if they feel isolated and lonely. Uh, I would say a good 90% of the class, if not more than that, will say we absolutely feel isolated and lonely. And that sense of belonging, I think, is where we need to go as the church to try to rectify that, as opposed to to just trying to explain the truth all the time about all of these different things. If we can solve the belonging, I think we can solve a lot of these issues.
0: And that's the... You know, I do think that's the answer to the question, because I can love you even when you're confused.
2: Right. Absolutely. Um, and, and we I belong lo- even in that. Right.
0: That's that's exactly right. And we still you know, we are still brother and sister in Christ, um, even in those moments when we disagree about what the truth is. Like, right. We, we we're still part of the same uh, same body. All right. So that's Peter Kapsner. Hey, thanks so much. Um, we uh, I think we will miss talking with you next week, but we'll uh, we'll catch up with you in a couple of weeks.
2: That sounds good. Thanks so much, Carmen.
0: Thanks so much, Peter. All right, friends, we're going to take a quick break uh, to listen to Making Your Life Count. We'll be right back. All right, uh, let me just remind you that if you want more resources on the conversation that Peter Kapsner and I just had, um, I'm going to direct you to the Restored Hope Network, and that's restoredhopenetwork.org. network.org. Um, And again, if these are conversations that you need further equipping on, just let us know. You can always email me, Carmen, at MyFaithRadio.com. We'll try to find you a network in your own area um, where you and your family and your church can get some help in these areas. All right. Next up, I'm going to have a conversation with Hunter Baker. Maybe you have heard that Jim Mattis has a book. Um, Nobody seems to like it, which I think is probably when everybody is talking about it and nobody really likes it, that's probably a good indication you've written a really good book. So. Uh, Hunter Baker and I are going to talk about um, uh, General Mattis, um, and we're going to talk about sort of the conversations at the intersection of faith and politics and leadership in particular. So that's up next here on Mornings with Carmen.
1: I love the song. He's got the whole world in his hands. When I was a child, it made me feel so safe and secure. Even when I hear it now, I feel the same way. Hi, I'm Callie Breeze with Thrive helping you be wise and thrive. You know, it feels good to know that God has his eyes on everything, but he gives us some responsibility too. We have to do our part to be wise stewards of the resources he's given to us. When it comes to money, are you being a good steward? Are you preparing for the unexpected? Are you planning for the future? And are you living a generous life? Perhaps you'd benefit from guidance on this path of stewardship, help preparing for things like buying a home or paying for college planning for retirement. Maybe you're looking for ways to get out of debt while still being able to live a life free from fear of the future. A financial professional can help you navigate these questions. And don't forget to keep God, who has the whole world in his hands, at the center of your money story.
0: All right. Dr. Hunter Baker is back with us today. He teaches at Union University. He also teaches right here because he's helping us understand things at the intersection of faith and ethics and politics and the conversations of the day. So welcome back, sir.
3: Thank you so much.
0: All right. So um, Mad Dog Mattis, like he is beloved by some people, uh, hated by others, and pretty much feared by all.
3: Uh, Yeah. Amazing, amazing military career that he has had. And uh, he is currently promoting a book, which I understand he was actually writing before his uh, time in the Trump White House uh, because he was retired before he became um, defense secretary. And uh, so now everybody is trying to interpret the interviews he's giving. uh, And a lot of people are are disappointed because they want him to uh, to be super critical of Donald Trump. And that's not what Mattis is trying to do right now.
0: So I, it's a book, you know, I think that when you're when you're trying to talk about a subject matter area um, like statementship or like leadership or what it means to be an American, um, it seems as if it's difficult for people to think beyond the current moment or outside of the current moment. And I get the sense that what Mattis is doing is trying to get everybody to think beyond the current moment, outside of the current moment, and have a real conversation about not only what it means to be an American and what the the foundational principles of that conversation would look like, but, but what it means to lead in a world like the one we live in today
3: yeah that's right. I mean there there are clearly several themes that he wants to emphasize. Uh, one of them has to do with the nature of American politics and our military commitments. Um, <clears throat> it's clear to me that part of what he's trying to achieve is to reunite Americans. I think that I think that he is concerned that we have lost just sort of the basic civic friendship and fellow feeling uh, to even sort of be in a country together uh, that we are so deeply divided that, uh, <clears throat> that it's more like we're concerned about fighting each other than anybody else. Uh, so he's trying to work on that. He's trying to model the old idea that uh, politics stops at the water's edge um, and that we maintain a certain amount of external unity. Uh, and he's trying to uh he's trying to get the military out of politics to some degree you know he he keeps saying that he does not want to uh, he doesn't want to kind of build up a tradition where the military is criticizing the president uh or entering into partisan politics
0: so let's talk about um the kinds of regimes around the world where the military is fully politicized because that is never good. Am I right? No,
3: no. Well, I mean, the, one of the big reasons to try to keep the military away from politics is that, is that if it enters in, then people begin to see the military as a political force. Mm -hmm. Right. So, Mm -hmm. uh, so for example, um, In some countries, uh, there might almost be an expectation for the military to uh, engage in some kind of a coup, right, Uh, to take out the civilian leadership and to assert itself as an authority. Um, And that that has happened. It continues to happen at various times, Um, but it's deeply destabilizing, I think, because you – you know, Ultimately, what that reminds you is, is that whoever has the guns is calling the tune. Uh, and in the United States, uh, our military is far and away the biggest one. Uh, if that became a political force, then the, the temptation to use it domestically would probably be uh, too much. It's important to have the culture that we do that it's under civilian control
0: so again i my conversation partner is dr hunter baker we're We're talking about things that are happening in the headline news that you're gonna see and hear today um on t v and from the you know pundits and talking heads. One of the things you're going to see uh, are conversations with Jim mattis as he is on a uh promotional book tour and in fact if you've been uh if you've been paying attention even this morning, I think he's been like on four different shows It's like he's like really making the rounds um and so Uh, You're going to see pull quotes. You're going to see things that he has said that are going to, in some cases, look like they are supportive of an individual um, who he would continue just to describe as the commander in chief. And I think that's where, um, Hunter, we we have to remember this is a person with a really long military career. He has served under a number of commanders in chief, um, some of whom he probably liked and appreciated, and some of whom he probably did not personally like or appreciate. Um, But in every in every one of those cases, what he's demonstrating is that you lead in the context where you are given the opportunity to lead, regardless of the regime that happens to be you know in the White House at the time, right so he is that is the commander in chief no matter which political uh, uh leaning you might personally have if you're a member of the u s military, that is your commander in chief whether you like him or her or not
3: yeah, one thing that I really liked uh that Mattis has said is that he was, uh, you know, so I guess I guess he may be a baby boomer uh, one way or the other. Of course, baby boomers have gotten pretty old these days. And uh, and he talks about being a person who's raised by the, the previous generation, sometimes called the greatest generation, uh, who lived through uh, World War II and the Great Depression. And he says that he was raised with the idea that if you are asked to serve by the President of the United States then you will serve. And that was his approach. He didn't ask himself, uh, am I a Trump supporter or even am I a Republican or a Democrat? He said, if he had been asked by a Democrat to serve as defense secretary, he would have felt that he needed to do so. Uh, so just that, that high ideal of public service, the idea that, that if my country needs me and if I can, if I have the skills, uh, the reputation, the ability to do the job, then I will do the job. Uh, that's pretty refreshing in a time when everybody is is looking at politics in such a highly partisan manner.
0: So, yes, just want to uh, confirm and affirm that Mattis, born in 1950, making him certainly a baby boomer like, uh-huh. right, because I think we look at that generation as Those born between like 46 and 64. So, um, all right. So, Hunter, let's take a quick break. When we come back, I'd love to talk uh, about Boris Johnson and what's going on in the U.K. Uh, We talked yesterday with David Aikman, but things have really changed in the last 24 hours. In fact, it's uh, it's so dynamic that CNN has like an ongoing updated live feed on what's happening in the U.K. parliament um, so we're going to return to that conversation here in just a moment. I'm talking with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University, and we'll be right back. Returning to my conversation with Dr. Hunter Baker from Union University. Um, all right. So, Hunter, what? Uh, I mean, I don't even quite know how to ask a question that is comprehensive enough. Um what what in the world is going on in uh, in the U.K.? We have talked about the new prime minister, Boris Johnson, but is you know, does he get this remain prime minister now that he does not have a majority in parliament?
3: <clears throat> well, that's a question. Um, there would have to be an election. But here's the thing. Uh, I think that uh, I think that 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 folks who are opposed to Brexit don't want to have an election. Um You know, see, the old the old system was, was that the prime minister could pretty much call an election whenever they wanted to. Uh, And so, you know, if you were if you were riding high, uh, you could go more rapid than the than the five year term. And you could say after two years, hey, let's have an election. I'm feeling good. Uh, I think I'm going to get more seats and um, they can still do that. But there's a fixed parliaments act. That only allows them to do that with the assent of two-thirds of Parliament. House of Commons is my understanding. And so uh so here's the thing: Johnson would like to have an election because right now, you know, he inherited from Theresa May this this very slim majority that, as you pointed out, has has now uh had defections, right? Uh and so he has to do something to change the dynamic and the reason he wants to hold an election is is that what he knows is that more britons voted for brexit than have voted for practically anything ever in british politics uh more britons voted for brexit three million more britons voted for brexit than the maximum that have voted for either of the two major political parties Now, that was a narrow result. It was 52-48, but the participation was super high. And so Johnson's calculus is, is that if he can get in another election and it's clear to the people that the only way Brexit actually gets done is to strengthen his hand, he thinks that they will vote with him and that he will manage to do that.
2: Well
0: and if uh if young people are any indication apparently there have been more than 100,000 young Brits uh under the age of 34 who have registered to vote in the last 48 hours in Great Britain.
3: Fascinating. <laughs> so Fascinating. I just think if you're
0: like right if you're Boris Johnson you're like looking at that and you're like the I the, I am I'm speaking for the people here. I have got um I have got members of a government who want what they want. But they don't want what the people want. I mean, that is that's essentially what I see unfolding.
3: Yeah, there's a great piece. um, People can Google it. uh, Christopher Caldwell uh, for Claremont Review of Books. He wrote a really comprehensive piece on this. Um, Obviously, some of the information is dated by now, but he explains really well why Brexit hasn't happened yet. And part of it is, is that basically the elite class uh, in England does not want it to happen. And uh, Caldwell makes the case that even Theresa May, when she became prime minister, even though she was the prime minister to try and achieve Brexit, she herself did not really want Brexit. Uh, so what you have is you have something that the majority of people voted for. Uh, I think that the reason it was put as a referendum was that that folks were hoping it would lose and then the issue would go away. Uh, and obviously the the shocking reverse thing happened, kind of like Donald Trump's election Uh, and then the elite class had to deal with it. And so they don't want Brexit, uh, the, you know, all of the arrangements in Europe are sort of built on it. Uh, and, and they just don't, they don't want this change. And so they're trying to figure out everywhere they can to prevent it. And Boris Johnson, uh, has kind of seen the main chance to be the politician who tries to push it through.
0: All right. If you guys are following me on Twitter at Carmen LaBurge, I'm now tweeting out the article from the Claremont Institute um that by Christopher Caldwell that Hunter just referred to. So follow me on Twitter at Carmen LaBurge and I'm tweeting out the article because this is complicated. From the Claremont Institute, written by Christopher Caldwell, you know, to, to save you the trouble of Googling.
3: <laughs> it's a great, <laughs> great piece. Yeah. That. It is a great history.
0: piece. It it yeah. is it's a great piece. Um and the Caldwell Institute is one that people should know about. So
3: all right. it yeah, an opportunity.
0: Yes. Yeah. yeah. It gives us an opportunity to uh, to talk about them as well. Um, all right. So, Hunter, um, third thing, um, the targeting of the media in what is just now like the emerging 2020 election cycle. It seems yeah. as if everybody is n- n- not appreciative of the way the media is covering them. It's as if politicians imagine and their advocates imagine that. Um, really the media is a propaganda wing of your of your party and of of your campaign. And that is just not what the free press in America is designed to do.
3: Yeah, well, you know, it has been that way. It has been that way in the past. I I think that most of us grew up in a little bit of a a golden period. I know that I know that even those of us who are Gen Xers and, uh, you know, people like that, that we feel like the media is biased. But Uh, But the reality is for most of our lives, uh, there were there were a relatively few major media outlets and they had to kind of play it down the middle uh, much more than they do now. Um, But we're kind of returning to the period that existed before that. Uh, You know, the old system was was that the two parties had their own newspapers. Right. You know, almost every city would kind of have the Republican paper and the Democrat paper. Uh, and you would take the one that sort of corresponded to your views, um, we have gone back in that direction in a big way, right? I mean, you know, you can – I was just talking to my students yesterday. You can absolutely have the news any way you want it, including with conspiracy theories. Uh, and so so that's where we are now. Nobody trusts the press. Uh, a turn toward – Targeting journalists to discredit them I think would be a terrible mistake, uh, a waste of politicians' time. If you think that people are reporting about you unfairly, then it's your job to get the true story out, not to try to destroy people who are reporting about you.
0: Right. So I think that as we, you know, as we remind people who are listening right now – uh, about who we are as a as a people, we talk a lot about religious freedom. Maybe we don 't talk enough about the freedom of the press, so just remind us what are you know why the First Amendment says what it says and what it comprehensively includes
3: well, every part of that i mean those those are the essential freedoms to keeping a government in check right i mean uh, the so the freedom of speech. Uh, we have turned it into the freedom to, you know, say say uh, curse words in in rap songs or something like that, or to or to to show nudity in films. But the real purpose of free speech in the First Amendment is to maintain the freedom to criticize the government, right? To express dissent, um, and the freedom of the press is likewise, right? So so that the government will not control all the reporting that is done about it but that there can be some independent source of information to which people can turn. So what these really are, these are critical parts of defending a free society, uh which the founders were worried it would be hard to do. Um and those those amendments, those parts of the Bill of Rights uh have served us extremely well.
0: All right, so as we um as we look ahead here, Hunter, what um What do you see on the horizon of our cultural conversations that you're, you know, you're a professor. What, what are you hearing students talking about? What do you wish they were talking about that they're not talking about? And what do you wish we were talking about uh, here in terms of the intersection of ethics, religion, and politics?
3: Gosh, I I think that, I think that not only students, but I think that so many people in the culture are just disgusted by politics right now. Uh, Mm -hmm. You know, it's, it's difficult to be a political science professor right now. At first, it was kind of – it was a little bit fun because the, the Trump thing was so unusual uh, that we could get people to show up for events simply by putting Donald Trump's name on it. Uh, <laughs> but, but over time, the, the battle between the two sides is becoming so contentious that it's hard to really address the substance of anything. Right It's just a matter of mm-hmm. you know who, whose side are you on, and, uh, and I, I just don't think that hardly anybody has an appetite for constructive public policy, which I think is really hard, because politics, generally speaking, I mean outside of something like the abortion issue or uh, religious freedom, politics, by and large, is, is not straight- up theology. and so compromise is okay. Uh, And we can and we can work on that. But right now, I think that we've lost our ability to to be constructive together.
0: Okay. so the next time that you come on, can we just go ahead and agree in advance? I'm going to stick it in the calendar um, that we're going to talk about what what the nature of compromise is in political conversation and constructive political um, public policy. And how, as a Christian, I engage in that without um because because people from the right are going to shoot at me constantly or the left <laughs> that I have compromised my faith I have compromised Christ by by participating in a conversation um that's about the public sphere that you know that doesn't absolutely hard line at every point dot and tittle um you know isn't isn't quote unquote Christian by their definition of it? So can we have that conversation? Because that's
3: hard. And but good. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I, that's that's what we should all be talking about. Yes. All
0: right. Well, that's what we're going to talk about the next time you you come to to join us. I would love that. That's Hunter Baker. You can find him. Well, he's ubiquitous. You can find him all over the place. Where do you want me to send them? Uh, as you know, one one good social media follow.
3: Just Facebook or Twitter. I'm kind of the original Hunter Baker, so you can, I know. You can find me. I love yeah. it.
0: Hunter and Baker. All right. Hunter Baker. That's from Union University. Check out what he is doing and thinking and talking about. And we can't wait to have you back. Thanks, man. Thank you. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Mornings with Carmen LeBurge from Faith Radio. If you haven't, you can subscribe to automatically receive the podcast through iTunes or the Google Play Music app. That way you never miss an episode. It's also available anytime at MyFaithRadio.com.